today on the podcast, we have Dr. Ben Witherington, professor of New Testament at Asbury Theological Seminary. And there will be a day when all creatures, great and small, will be caught up in love and wonder and praise of God. That's where this story is going. Welcome to Captain's Corner, a podcast about community, mission, and culture. This podcast is a ministry of the Salvation Army of Tampa, where we exist because we believe every person can be the person God has called them to be. Please check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd like to take a moment to recognize our sponsors for helping to make this podcast possible. Thank you to RegisterToRing.com and to a very generous anonymous donor. We hope you guys enjoy the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Captain's Corner. We just want to tell you how much we appreciate you uh, subscribing to this podcast, sharing it when you can. It really helps us spread the influence of this podcast. So if you haven't done that, or if you even could go on and give us a review on iTunes, those type of things make a big difference in the ministry of this podcast. Um, today, we have on Dr. Ben Witherington. And just to make things all the more challenging for the amazing Brendan Moore, our technical producer of this podcast, I did this. I had this great conversation with Dr. Ben Witherington. I mean, maybe one of my favorites yet. We went on for over an hour. He's hilarious. He's insightful. He's scholarly. He's one of my professors from Asbury Theological Seminary. I just, I loved it. And after the conversation was over and I gave the recording equipment to Brendan, we realized that my voice was not recorded. How disappointing. So now, of course, the interview actually can go on. We're going to go ahead and try to have this recording, and I'm going to just insert myself a few times here and tell you what I asked Dr. Witherington. And most of the conversation, anyways, is him talking, and that's exactly what we want. So I think you'll still benefit from this conversation, and you'll see him speak about a variety of things that I think will be insightful to you, maybe some things you hadn't heard before. So I'm going to go ahead and do this, and you won't hear me laughing at his jokes, which I did laugh at his jokes. You won't hear me kind of like going back and forth with them here and there. But in general, the big pieces are still there as a part of this conversation. The first thing I acknowledge was that Dr. Witherington is unique in that he has written a commentary on all the books of the New Testament. In addition to dozens of other books that he's written. So he is a prolific writer. I used to sit next to him in seminary when we were, we, we had kind of like almost like an internet cafe set up. And every now and then he would just sit down right next to me and I would wa- watch him type. I mean, he types so fast and it just all comes so quickly to him. He's a photographic memory, it seems. So he, he has written prolifically. And I, the first question I asked was about that process that he had towards moving towards writing a commentary on the entire New Testament, which wasn't, which comes in like pieces here and there. So the first answer that he gives me is about that question about writing a commentary on every book in the New Testament. Well, it's, there's a long backstory, but I'll give you the uh, Reader's Digest version. I've been a writer since I was a child. Um, I, I was actually published before I got out of high school. So yeah, writing always came easily to me. And then I did an English lit degree at Carolina, and it became even easier to write about whatever I had information on. So 
when I finished Carolina, I went to seminary and worked on a Master's of Divinity degree at Gordon Conwell and concentrated on New Testament. I took 13 New Testament exegesis classes and theology classes. And then I went on to do my Ph.D. at the University of Durham in England, not to be confused with that other Durham in North Carolina. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. That, that would be the Dukies. I am not a Dukie. And so um, I, I did my Ph.D. on women and their roles in the New Testament um, at the University of Durham under the person who then was the leading Methodist New Testament scholar in the world, C.K. Barrett. And um, what happened then with me was really quite surprising. I mean, normally doctoral dissertations, if they get published at all, you know, it's like 10 copies, libraries only buy them and whatnot. But what happened to me was that this was such a hot topic, women in, in the New Testament and women in ministry, that Cambridge University Press turned my dissertation into two Cambridge monographs, which became their best-selling monographs ever. And, well, yeah, and then my wife and I did a Reader's Digest for the layperson version of the first two called Women and the Genesis of Christianity. And that also has continued to do very well. So I was in the rather unique position of really not having to seek out publishers to take my work, they came after me. And because I'm a Methodist, an evangelical Methodist that's concerned about biblical orthodoxy, I was very perturbed to to learn that nobody in the history of Methodism or their spinoffs, Wesleyanism, Nazarene, Salvation Army, etc., various churches like AME Zion, etc., no one, no scholar in those traditions had ever done a good commentary on every book of the New Testament. Unlike the Calvinists, where you could sort of line up 15 of those boys who have done that over the last 300 years. And I thought, this is just not very good. And so I sort of promised the Lord that if you know my, my brain worked and my health was maintained, that I would try to write a good commentary on every book of the New Testament. And I had no problems getting it uh, published. You know, Erdman's was happy to take a bunch of them. Um, uh, InterVarsity took a bunch of them. Individual publishers of other kinds, like Fortress, took some of them. And uh, and so, uh, you know, in the last... Ten years, actually just last year, I finished up the project with a commentary on the Gospel of Luke that I did jointly with a friend of mine, A.J. Levine, which is, which is the first ever commentary by a Jew and a Christian together on a Christian gospel. Uh, so it's a sort of un- unprecedented kind of commentary. Um, and so, you know, that, 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 that was my trajectory to do that. Uh, because, unfortunately, in the evangelical world, even though Arminians or Wesleyans are the majority of the evangelical world, I mean, if you throw in the Pentecostals, the Mennonites, etc., etc., by far the majority of so-called evangelicals, by, by which I mean Orthodox Protestants, 
are not Calvinists, but but the Calvinists have dominated everything from Christianity Today to the biblical societies like the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, to the writing of commentaries. And it's our own fault. We've, we have so concentrated on uh, local church work, evangelism, lay leadership, all that stuff, which is all great. Nevertheless, at the sort of top level of intellectual stimulation, we have been mostly missing in action. And I'll give you an illustration. When I, when I got into this business back at the dawn of time, by which I mean the 1970s, there was only one internationally recognized Methodist New Testament scholar that was an evangelical. That was I, Howard Marshall. That was it. Zippo, beyond that, there was just not any others that had written great commentaries and, you know, done yeoman's work in the exegesis of the New Testament. And I thought, this is just not good, because there are many different ways to interpret those passages in the New Testament that have to do with predestination and election and all that sort of stuff. After Dr. Witherington mentioned these points, I brought up how the fact that when I took his Romans class, his Romans commentary had just come out with Urbans, and he how it was the first, at least he had said at the point, I wanted to ask for a clarification, it was the first commentary, full-out commentary, written on Romans to that point that had been published. So I asked him about that. That's right. That's exactly right, which, which is a shock, because— we're talking about two millennia have gone by, and how could I possibly be the first one? To top it off, I remember you saying in my Romans class that Romans is a book within the Bible that's written on more than any other book. That is correct. And Romans 7 and 8 have produced more dissertations than any other passage in the Bible. Period. Not even close. I made a shift here in our conversation as I started to talk to Dr. Witherington about his work in analyzing archaeological data. Now, he'll very quickly say he's not the archaeologist, but I asked him specifically about his work on the James Ossuary. This was a big news probably in the mid-2000s, around 2004 or five or so. So you'll hear him talk here about archaeology, but specifically the James Box. Sure. Um well, first a disclaimer. Uh, I'm not the arch- an archaeologist or the son of an archaeologist. You know what they say about them. Their life is constantly in ruins. But, but, but I, am, I, am, I go to the sites, I analyze their data, and look at what their implications are for biblical studies. And that's, that's my role in all of that. So, the, the way I did get directly involved was with Herschel Shanks in writing the book, The Brother of Jesus, about the remarkable James Ossuary, which, by the way, to this day, the epigraphers who studied it then and later, even after the trial about this thing, are quite clear that it has a first-century inscription, an authentic inscription that says, uh, Yaakov, which means James, Jacob, son of Joseph, his brother is Jesus. It's very clear that it's, it's specifying a very specific relationship. And, and when you've got James, Joseph, and Jesus, the three J's, 
all on one ossuary, the chances that this is not those biblical figures from the first century when this is a first century ossuary are slim and none and slim left town. I mean, it, it's very likely this is the burial box of James. And so what we know about that is that, he, you know, he was tossed off the pinnacle of the temple in A.D. 62 when there was no Roman governor around. They were between Roman governors and the Jewish authorities. The grandson of Caiaphas, no less, got rid of him. So that family had an animus against the Jesus family from the time of Jesus for another 30 years into two more generations. And, and so he was buried somewhere within the site of the Temple Mount. Uh, he was called James the Just, and he was buried there. Well, this is exactly where the James Oshuary was found. It was found in Silwan, which is the little Palestinian village, which is uh, next to the city of David on the south side of the Temple Mount. And that's where this Oshuary was found. And uh, so... To this day, I'm very happy to say I'm quite convinced this is a this is the genuine burial box of of James. And here's the interesting thing. Now, that culture was an honor and shame culture. If if Jesus had simply been crucified and that was the end of his story, there is no way on God's green earth that anybody would brag on their tombstone that they're related to Jesus if he, if he had been publicly shamed in that way, and there was no redress, there was no reversal of that afterwards. So the ossuary is an indirect testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Here I responded saying that James's conversion is a testimony to Jesus' resurrection, is it not? That's right. Well, Paul says Jesus appeared to him. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul mentions that. And that's actually uh, very important because in John 7, 5, we're told that the brothers didn't believe in him or were not his disciples during his ministry. So something reversed that, and the something was the appearance of Jesus to James, and that's how he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So very clearly, this ossuary is important material evidence uh, uh, to the importance of James, and also indirectly to the resurrection of Jesus. And I remember some of the Jewish scholars uh, who were partly behind trying Oded Golan, to whom this box belonged. And, of course, that trial did not result in the guilty verdict that they wanted, um, and his artifacts were returned to him. Um, I remember one of the Jewish scholars saying, we can't let this ossuary fall into the hands of uh, devout Christians, because they'll use it for apologetics. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. They don't want to hear about the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you very much. You know, uh, as Larry Norman once said, they nailed him to the cross, they laid him in the ground, but they should have ought to known you can't keep a good man down. So, you know, um, you know, I, I've been privileged to spend a lot of time in the lens of the Bible, and I keep going. Um, and, and, you know, so far as I know, there's no archaeological evidence anywhere that refutes any of the claims in the New Testament about 
Jesus or various other matters that are subject to the New Testament, save the book of Acts, those sorts of things. So whenever we found little bits of archaeological evidence, it actually confirms uh, the things that the New Testament is saying about these things. I'll give you two quick examples. First of all, if you go to Corinth, there is an amphitheater down below the old city site, and below the amphitheater there is a in-the-ground first-century inscription in Latin that says Erastus, for the office of Adyl, paved this parking lot. Now, the office of Adyl is the same thing as the city treasurer, and in Romans 16, we have a greeting from an Erastus who is the oikonomos, the city treasurer, to the Christians in Rome. Now, the chances that there were two Erasti who were Adiles in Corinth during this period are, frankly, non-existent. Uh, it's not a very common name, to be honest. And so there we have a confirmation of what Romans 16 says, that there was somebody in Corinth, a high social status office holder in Corinth, whom Paul converted. And so, I mean, that's, that would be one example there of, of a piece of confirmation of, of uh, some biblical data, a, a correspondence between the things in the ground and, and the things that we know from the scriptures themselves. Another good one would be you remember the story in Acts 19 and 20 about Paul having to uh, drop off the keely and set himself free from Ephesus because of the riot in the theater. And the people who warned him to get out of town, Jack, were the Asiarchs. Well, uh, there were numerous German scholars when I was beginning to do my biblical studies work that sneered at this, and they said, there were no Asiarchs in Paul's day. Uh, in Ephesus or Miletus, anywhere nearby. Well, I'm I'm going through the archaeological site at Miletus, and here's this stone that says the the Asiarchs dedicated uh, this stone for the building of the amphitheater in Miletus. Now we know that amphitheater was built in the first century A.D. So I'm going wrong. <laughs> there were Asiarchs. And Paul could have known them. So, you know, there, there are these little indirect pieces of correspondence or confirmation so that where the New Testament can be tested, there's no reason to think that the New Testament evidence isn't telling us the truth about the historical substance of what went on. And so, you know, I, I find, to me, that's helpful uh, in various ways, especially in an age of skepticism. At this point, I wanted to talk to Dr. Witherington about his interaction and kind of the mentorship he received from Dr. Gordon Fee. And I mentioned how he had studied with I. Howard Marshall and his interest in him. And he kind of said earlier in the interview that I. Howard Marshall was like the kind of only significant New Testament scholar in um, who wasn't in the Reformed tradition. Well, I brought up Gordon Fee. I, th I mean, think of him, though he comes in a Pentecostal tradition, being somebody who would have um, been a mentor in that way. So then he followed up re and responded like this. Well, n no, in the 70s, he had not 
done in the early 70s, he had not done what he was going to go on to do to write a great commentary on 1 Corinthians. And, and to me, the best book ever written on the Holy Spirit in Paul is God's Empowering Presence. It's a big book. He then excerpted it for the lay people. It's the best book ever written on the Holy Spirit in Paul, for, for my money. I mean, he was go, to go on to do many things, but what he did his Ph.D. in was textual criticism. So he, he, he actually has the same degree as Bart Ehrman got from Princeton, but Gordon did his from the University of Southern California. So he only got into real exegesis in theology once he came to Gordon-Conwell and started writing commentaries and theological monographs. So in the early 70s, I mean, there was F.F. F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce was a Plymouth Brethren not a Methodist, not a Calvinist either, but but nonetheless, not a Wesleyan, not a Nazarene. Uh, he was not going on to perfection, let me put it that way. His, his doctrine of sanctification was not Wesleyan. So it was really Howard Marshall or nobody. And it's interesting to me that Howard Marshall did his doctoral dissertation on apostasy and the perseverance of the saints. He he did he did um, he did a wonderful study which was then published in a, a readable form for pastors and laypersons uh, about uh, about the fact that the New Testament tells and warns Christians that they could be in danger of committing moral or intellectual apostasy and uh, it's an important study because of course if that's correct then none of the tulip of Calvinists is true. You know, if if it's not true, that once saved, always saved, then the rest of that whole line of dominoes falls down. If it's possible for genuine Christian people to commit apostasy, then it, once saved, always saved is not what the New Testament teaches. It teaches what I tell people it teaches, which is you're not eternally secure till you're securely in eternity. I asked Dr. Witherington about the lack of scholars in the Wesleyan holiness or Wesleyan evangelical tradition, and I wanted to probe him because I knew he know he has been studying or helping PhD students at Asbury Theological Seminary. I know some others who've studied with him in Scotland, so I was just curious if he has seen a change in that regard and if things have been improving with Wesleyan scholarship. Well, what? Something I haven't mentioned, which I absolutely should mention, is that this lack was recognized by evangelical Methodists back in the 70s, uh, chiefly by Ed Robb, who was a Methodist evangelist in Texas. And he set up a program called APTIA, Fund for Theological Education, to uh, give scholarships to evangelical Wesleyan persons to do their doctoral work and then invest in the academy. Uh, to this date, there's about 175 of us. So since 1977 to now, we just celebrated our, our 40th anniversary two years ago, there are now a lot more Wesleyan scholars out there because of that program. Not necessarily because of Asbury, but because of that program. And uh, there are a lot of good ones. There are a lot of really good ones out there. So I'm happy to say that I was part of the first wave of those folks. 
So I want to just tell a quick story about how I got into one of Dr. Worthington's classes. You see, it wasn't very easy. You had to have a couple of classes in hermeneutics. You had to have two courses in Greek. And then finally, you actually could be in a position to take his exegesis of Romans class. But not only did you just have all those prerequisites in place, you had to be in a position to like be online. And we actually had to use dial-up internet in that time from my like our little apartment Wilmore I remember getting myself ready so at 1201 I could sign into the seminary database and sign up for his class and my fear was that I signed in at 1201 and already I had missed missed a few slots so I by the skin of my teeth got into his Romans class which was a real blessing and I wanted to talk about that a little bit here and um, so I just mentioned that and then he talked about the nature of getting into his classes and how that's a reoccurring problem. Well, we were glad to have you. Now, there are not that many prerequisites to take the class, at least at the six or 700 level. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a pretty common problem. See, I have to divide my teaching load between doctoral seminars half the time and uh, master's level classes. So I'm just not teaching as many master's level classes as I used to. And so what I've decided that was the most important thing to do is teach the introduction to the New Testament at the master's level. So I regularly do that class, both in class and online, because that really sets the agenda and the table for all future exegesis and theology classes that you take. I, it's, it's critically important because it orients you to everything, you know, the genre of the literature, everything, everything, you know. And, uh, and I finally got around to writing a textbook for the class called Invitation to the New Testament. And uh, so, you know, I, I, at this point, I'm sort of playing with the house's money. Whatever the seminary really needs me to do, I'm doing. I have been doing, which you will already know, I've been doing a lot more Salvation Army events uh, uh, all over the place in the southeast and the south-central uh, region. I, this past two years, I did one in Alabama and one in Florida and one in Georgia. So, you know, I'm I'm trying to help our brethren in the Salvation Army along the way as well. And, you know, it's been very well received. But one of the things that has struck me a lot about the Army is, yes, they're very much evangelical Wesleyan folks in spirit. But they've also been affected by lay theology like dispensationalism and various other things. And and there are problems with all of that, uh, not only inconsistencies with the Wesleyan theology, but just general exegetical problems with that. So one of the functions I've been serving in your circles is to uh, tell them that the Left Behind series needs to be left behind. And uh, so, you know, that, that I, I hope I'm being a good servant of, of helping the Salvation Army understand what evangelical orthodoxy really amounts to and what it doesn't amount to as well. At this point, I asked Dr. Witherington about his experiences with the Salvation Army. I just wondered when he came in touch with the Salvation Army and kind of like his general thoughts about our work. Yes, I 
Well, I agree, and I have a personal story about that. One of my students, when I first came to Asbury in 1995, was Sasha Sutsarov uh, from Moscow. Uh, he, he and his wife were converted by Salvation Army officers. He was converted out of the KGB, okay? He, he was... He was one of Vladimir Putin's buddies in the KGB. They were converted out of the KGB, uh, and he came to Asbury Seminary because OMS, the Overseas Mission Society, said go to Asbury, and he did. And he was one of my students, and I saw him through the master's level, and then I got him into the St. Andrew's doctoral program, and he got his Ph.D. And he's been the dean of Moscow Evangelical Seminary ever since, and that seminary is the only one in Russia today, Protestant seminary, that's really prospering and has been training hundreds and hundreds of Russian Pentecostals and Baptists and etc. So praise the Lord for the Salvation Army in Moscow, you know, in, in that regard. And, and uh, so, you know, I've seen the work that you do all over the world. And I'm very thankful for it. And uh, I often say when I go and do an event for the Salvation Army, the only army I really believe in is the Salvation Army. Uh, and and that's the truth for me. I'm a pacifist. I, I do not, I you know, for me, the Sermon on the Mount, as for John Wesley, is sort of the blueprint for how to live your life. And for me... Uh, that means, as a Christian person, I'm not going to go around killing anybody. And so, you know, I, I, I absolutely believe in the, the loving and peaceful work that the Salvation Army does, even for the least and last and lost. And praise the Lord for all of that. I knew in this interview I wanted to talk about two key moments that came for me while taking uh, Ben's class on Romans, and that was first place in Romans 8 and then Romans 16. And it was really, when I was in this class, I can remember exactly where I, where I was sitting, what was going on in the room, when he explained the reality of a new creation and the resurrection of our bodies based upon Romans 8, that that finally clicked in for me. I didn't really grasp until that moment the two-stage reality of eternity that, yes, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and like kind of like in a, as we said in the sermon series that we just had here at the Salvation Army in Tampa called All Things New, where we talk about a present heaven or heaven level one, where our souls are after we die. But I hadn't fully grasped it idea of a renewed creation on a new resurrected planet until his class. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that in a certain sense, but it was a great moment for me. So I asked him to talk about that and talk about like what's wrong with maybe this idea of a of a of just a disembodied state for all eternity. And I knew that he would have some interesting things to say in this regard because I experienced that. And I hope that you all can benefit too from this answer. Let's start with a rhetorical question. Why in the world would the creator of the universe give up his creation and just allow it to be destroyed forever in exchange for a few scrawny souls in heaven? That He's a creator of material reality, and the resurrection is about a material resurrection of a person into a physical state. 
Now, that new resurrection body is immune to disease, decay, death, suffering, sin, and sorrow, but it's a real material body empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, you know, one of my favorite musical artists is Sting, and he actually has, he has a very good song where he says, what good would a resurrection body be if we lived in an old, worn-out earth? Well, he's right. He's absolutely right. We depend on air and clean water and the ecosystem to be a physical, sentient being in this world. I mean, we're not moving to Mars. Watch Matt Damon's Martian. That is not going to work. <laughs> that is, that's not what God wanted for us. And so, and here's the really sad part. The New Testament, when it talks about the afterlife, talks about new create, resurrection and new creation 95% of the time. And only 5% of the time does it talk about dying and going to heaven. But we, as a result of church history 2,000 years later, have put the emphasis on the wrong syllable entirely. We, we, we have put the emphasis on dying and going to be with Jesus. I mean, all of those old revival hymns from the 19th and 20th century that are still in the Salvation Army songbook, along with the New York Praise songs, they're all about dying and going to be with Jesus. That's, that's what they're about. Well, that is barely mentioned by Paul, who wrote 40-some percent of the New Testament, and is our earliest New Testament writer, Right. One time he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord in heaven. Fine. And then he goes on in that same passage to say, but I'd rather live until I get further clothed by the resurrection body. Because what's going to happen is not merely a new heaven or dying and going to heaven, but a new earth. I mean, have you noticed in Revelation 6, the saints under the altar are cranky. They're up there seeing... They're singing the blues. How long, O oh Lord? How long before we resolve this whole matter in a Revelation 20, 21, 22 way? And they're given a choir robe and told to hush. You know, heaven is an ultra-clean bus station on the way to the new heaven and new earth. And so Romans 8 even says the creation itself is groaning in futility because it's part of a fallen world. We're all looking forward to the renewal, all of us. Not just raised human beings, but a new recreated earth as well. So the final destiny of Jesus is not somewhere out there. The final destiny of us is not somewhere out there. It's right down here on terra firma when Jesus returns, and there is a new heaven and a new earth. I interjected here, this is why we sing at Easter Charles Wesley's song, Made like him, like him we rise. Not made like him, like him we live in some disembodied state next to Mars or something. Right, right. Christ's history is our destiny. That's, that's the real bottom line. And uh, short of that, the story is not over. I like what C.S. Lewis says. When the author of the play steps out on the stage, the play is over. Not until Jesus returns are we at the climax of the story. 
when he steps out on the stage of human history again, then we know we've gotten to the end times, the end of the end times, period. Before then, not so much, right? Not so much. As we're thinking of this, I asked him what he thought this might mean for animals and the rest of creation. Like, how do we think of all of creation being renewed and rather not that it has an influence or impacts what we think about animals? Of course. We're told in Isaiah that the lion's going to lie down with the lamb without thinking of lamb chops. I mean, that day is coming. The way Isaiah envisions the new heaven, new earth. And by the way, Isaiah is the one who first has all this vision of a new creation. He's the one, if not the author of Revelation or Paul that comes up with it. They're just drawing on what Isaiah said in the first place. Go read the end of Isaiah. Read Isaiah 64, 65, 66. You know, it's all right there. Beat the swords into plowshares. and You know, the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and et cetera, et cetera. We will study war no more. It's all in Isaiah, both early and late in Isaiah. And so um, this is where it was all going. And, you know, actually Jews understood this because of the exile. I mean, the real afterlife theology in the Bible doesn't show up before we get to Ezekiel and Daniel. Before that, all you hear about is dying and being gathered to your ancestors in Sheol. The only people that get beamed up into heaven have a name that begins with E, Enoch and Elijah. Otherwise, not so much, you know. And so the real afterlife theology doesn't come until it dawns on Jews who've been in exile for 50, 60, 70 years. Well, justice is not finally going to be done in this lifetime. But God is a just and holy God. So when is it going to be done? Well, it's going to be done in the afterlife. And if justice is going to be done in the afterlife, so is redemption going to be done in the afterlife. And really, it was that hard process of rethinking uh, what's going to happen after you die that, that leads to Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones and Daniel and Daniel 12 saying there really will be a resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, that whole theology doesn't really get going until the exile of, of Jews. And here's the point. All of creation was made to praise God, from the highest angel to the lowest critter. And there will be a day when all creatures, great and small, will be caught up in love and wonder and praise of God. That's where this story is going. Nothing less than that would match Genesis 1, which says it was tov ma'ov. It was very good. God reveled in all of the things he created. And so and that's where the story begins. That's where the story ends as well. This episode of Captain's Corner is brought to you by an anonymous donor who loves the ministry of the Salvation Army and RegisterToRing.com. Register to Ring is the simple way to sign up to ring bells at the Salvation Army. Ringing bells is a cherished holiday tradition, and money raised goes directly to help people in need in your community. To volunteer to ring in your community this holiday season, go to RegisterToRing.com to sign up today. You can sign up as an individual or a group. Just go to RegisterToRing.com. 
And let me just add that in Tampa, this has been a blessing to have registered a ring in place. We've had a great expansion of our volunteer efforts because of registered a ring. So check that out today. And our thanks to these sponsors for their help in producing Captain's Corner. Another clear moment that came for me in Dr. Witherington's class was when we got to Romans 16, which is the last chapter of Romans. And while we were there, it became very clear that this is a power-packed chapter defending the right for women to be actively involved in ministry. And I remember clearly the point where we talked about Andronicus and Junia. And again, I hadn't heard this before then, um, and I had seen the fact that there was a textual like note in most Bibles about rather June, it was Junia or Junias. Um, but this, the, what, what Dr. Witherington presented in that class has stuck with me through these 13 years of ministry as a Salvation Army officer and made a great impact on me. And so I wanted him to share about that. And I brought it up in the context of um, a comment that had been made the week I was talking to him by John MacArthur about Beth Moore, telling Beth Moore that she just needs to go home. And I knew that Dr. Witherington was just returning from a trip to Cyprus. I think he had been in many locations in Greece and Italy. Um, But I asked him if he had heard about John MacArthur's statement. Oh, I did see that. I, you know, my female doctoral students were ready to throw hand grenades at him. And, and unfortunately, I mean, I have said for a long time, the problem in the church is not strong, gifted women who can do ministry. The problem in the church is weak men who simply can't handle strong, gifted women like Beth Moore. That's the real problem. It's male ego insufficiency in various ways. And I've seen that over and over again. They feel threatened by women doing ministry, and that's just ridiculous. And and so the way I approach this issue from a general point of view is that roles in the church are not, I repeat not, gender-specific. They're not determined by your XY chromosomes. They're determined by who's called Who's gifted by the Holy Spirit to do what? That's it. I mean, if God can use Balaam's donkey to speak a word of God, for heaven's sakes, he can use both men and women to do that. And so, you know, that's, that's sort of a general principle. The, way, the reason it gets confused is because, of course, in the physical family, there are gender-specific roles. I mean, as much as I might like to have taken one for the team and given birth to our second child, I couldn't do that. I just don't have the equipment. So, of course, there are gender-specific roles in the physical family, but that should not be confused with the roles that we play in the church, because those are determined by who's called, who's gifted, and who can do it. And, uh, And so when you get to Romans 16... You not only have Phoebe, who, by the way, is the first person in all of New Testament history to be called a deacon. She's not even called a deaconess. She's simply called a diakonos. So if anybody should be the blueprint for how to be a deacon, it's her. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, of course, is, as you mentioned, Andronicus and Junia. And, And unfortunately, what you see throughout Christian history dominated by male patterns of leadership in the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and even later in the Protestant Church, is uh, equivocation on this. Uh, 
for example, there is no Latin name Junius, period. There's no male. That would be like naming your son Sue, right? You're not going to name a man after the goddess Junia. You're not going to do that. So very clearly, Junias is a female name, just as Andronicus is a male name. I interjected at this point that there was a textual tradition that had translated what is Junia into Junias. And so I asked him about that distinction and if it was significant. No, no, no. There is no way on God's green earth that that's a male name. But here's the problem. The earliest English translations, like uh, the Geneva Bible, the King James Bible, etc., just assumed, well, this must be a male name. Okay? It must be. So it was presented in the earliest English translations as a male name. Well, frankly, they had not done their homework about Roman names. Men were not given female names in the first century A.D. It so did not happen. You know, I mean, there may be some boys out there named Sue now, but not in, not in highly patriarchal Roman society. No way, Jose. So this is a man and a woman who are married, who are noteworthy among the apostles. And the Greek does not mean noteworthy to the apostles. It means they are amongst the apostles, both of them. So here we have a reference to a female apostle. And here's the kicker. Yes, there are two ways Paul uses the word apostle. It comes from the verb apostello, which means somebody who is sent out to do some kind of mission or ministry. And there were apostles with a little a of churches. Paul mentions this in Second Corinthians 8 and 9, okay? But when he's talking about himself, and he's talking about Andronicus and Junia, he's talking about those who are apostles of Jesus Christ. And that means these are people who saw the risen Lord. And if you read 1 Corinthians 15 carefully, the only people that get to be apostle with a capital A saw the risen Lord after Easter. So, so, and that's why Paul says he's the least and the last of the apostles. So what this means is that Andronicus and Junia were there in Jerusalem when Jesus rose from the dead. And that leads to the next chapter of this story, because Junia is in fact a Latin form of the name Joanna. Now, now, turn to Luke. Uh, Who was there? Who was last at the cross, first at the tomb, and first to see the risen Lord? Well, go back and read Luke 22, 23, and 24. Guess what? Joanna was there, and she saw with Mary Magdalene the risen Lord. So we are talking, in the case of Joanna slash Junia, we're talking about the only woman that we have a whole story for. Somebody who was a disciple of Jesus during the ministry, who is mentioned in Luke 8, 1 through 3, as a traveling disciple of Jesus with Mary Magdalene and Susanna and others, right? 
who who was there to witness as as the first witnesses of the death, entombment, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, and and so yes, she's an apostle with a capital A. Absolutely, and uh, so you know that that sort of squashes a lot of uh, Mr. MacArthur's arguments. But so does the story of, of Priscilla and Aquila in Acts, 8, in Acts 18. She and her husband take aside Apollos, a very prominent male Christian teacher, and teach him more accurately the way of the Lord. And this does not mean that they taught him how to serve tea at a fellowship meal. This means they taught him theology about having a proper theology of baptism, among other things. Because that's what the phrase, the way of the Lord, is about. How do you become a Christian? Well, you have to be baptized, among other things. So, you know, um, long story short, women were doing all kinds of things in the earliest first century A.D. And what happened in the later second century A.D., but especially after Constantine in the fourth century A.D., is the church reverted to a highly patriarchal model of leadership, just like all the other Greco-Roman religions, right? And in particular, what happened in the church was it embraced an Old Testament hermeneutic. So if ministers have to be priests because the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice and the church is actually a temple, well, then they have to be males. Read Leviticus right? And then we're off to the races. Then we've repristinized patriarchy, which is a result of the fall. I mean, if you actually read Genesis 2 and 3, what, what does God say to Eve? He says the curse is not only labor pains in delivering children. He says, your desire will be for your husband, and he will lord it over you. That is not the original blessing. That's the curse. So to love and to cherish degenerates into to desire and to dominate. And that's the, it is not an accident that only after that do we have patriarchs. <laughs> that's because patriarchy is a result of the fall. It's not God's original plan for men and women. And I could go on and on about that. If you actually read the Hebrew. When, when we are told that Eve is a suitable helper for Adam, that word helper does not imply any subordination at all. It's the word used for Yahweh as the helper of Israel. That certainly doesn't imply Yahweh is subordinate to Israel. Give me a break. So, so there, is, there is no patriarchal scheme set up in God's original creation plan. You will notice that Genesis also does not say uh, it was good for a woman to be alone. It's just the man that it was not good for him to be alone, right? Just the man. He needed a partner who was a complement, not a duplicate. And in order to fulfill the commandment to be fruitful and multiply, among other things, right? So the original design of God was male and female, and when Paul gets around to telling us what is the design of God in Christ, he says there is no Jew or Gentile, no slave or free, 
No male and female, all are one in Christ. In other words, he's going back to the original creation order design of God, which is not to reinforce patriarchy on the church. No way, Jose. I was really intrigued as Dr. Witherington was talking about the distinction between men and women, and he was rooting that in the created order. And I thought that would be interesting to think of this, and I, I kind of questioned him at this point, with what that meant for human sexuality. Like, it, can the same distinctions be drawn there? Um, are people created to live in, in like kind of the same-sex behavior? What does this mean? Like, how do we clarify these areas? And I think that they need to come together. So he had those great quotes there, and i um, quoting Galatians, and I just kind of wanted to see if he could um, discuss this in light of the kind of current challenges that our culture and our church culture is experiencing regarding human sexuality. Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Because uh, even from an evolutionary biological point of view, uh, when you have a species, a higher uh, order species, that gravitates towards same-sex behavior, which cannot reproduce or replicate itself, well, that, that species is destined for extinction. (laughs) So so there are all kinds of problems with that kind of behavior, to say the least. It's just, according to the Bible, not normal. And even from a sociological point of view, we're talking about 5 or 6 or 7 percent of the population. Even if you do the whole alphabet soup of LGBTQ, etc., we're talking about abnormal behavior. That's what we're talking about. And certainly not behavior that glorifies God. Um, you know, and so it's a sad thing to see uh, the church, including my church, fighting over this issue. I mean, it's going to divide my denomination next year, and it's a heartbreak. It's a heartbreak. I didn't expanded the sexuality question to talk about recent moves by some New Testament scholars to propose that what we have in the New Testament is different from what same-sex behavior and same-sex relationships are today. And I just asked him about that a little more particularly. Well, as a starting point, why don't you just look at the seven-minute seminaries that are on seedbed? I mean, there's one on homosexuality in Scripture that I did some time ago, and that's a good starting point. But, uh, you know, what I would want to say is that while it is certainly true that the Bible would critique pederasty, you know, older men abusing younger boys, of course, that's, that's true. The, the biblical critique is of any male lying with any male, whatever their age might be, and any female lying with any female, whatever age that might be. I mean, the Greek that Paul uses, arsenokoitis, literally means someone who copul- a male who copulates with a male. Okay, it's not it's not simply talking about the problem of pederasty. It's talking about that kind of behavior or activity in general. And um, so, you know, I, I I think it's there are a lot of people who have tried to say, you know, well, it doesn't really say that. It's talking about cult prostitution or it's talking about pederasty. No, it's a more general and sweeping moral principle about what is inappropriate sexual behavior. 
And that doesn't mean that we don't uh, allow anybody and everybody to come into our church or our fellowship, of course. Everybody's welcome to come as they are. That's how Jesus approached this matter. But here's the thing. Nobody's welcome to stay as they are. So the, the principle should be that you're going to be an equal opportunity critiquer of any and all kinds of sins that the Bible outlines. You're not going to single out gay people. You're not going to single out adulterers. You're not going to single out thieves. You're going to simply preach the Bible as it is and let that have its effect. And that means that we're not going to be endorsing anybody's pet sins and calling them good. And, and that, just, that just cannot happen because that just completely ruins the witness, the ethical integrity and witness of the church. I had not only heard Dr. Witherington talk about the Salvation Army when he spoke on sacraments in his class on Romans and other classes that I had been in with him, but I also heard him talk about it in public lectures and even in some YouTube videos where often when he talks about the sacraments, particularly baptism, he brings up the Salvation Army and just talks about this distinction that we have and notes, too, that we are a spirit-filled congregation and that our salvation isn't dependent upon any outward sign. But I know, too, from personal conversation with him that he thinks the Salvation Army would be better off if we did practice and reinstitute the traditional sacraments. And some of you might not know that the Salvation Army, um, in 1883, several years after we were founded, uh, abandoned the practice of the Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, that's a long discussion. Doctoral dissertations have been written on it, and I'm writing on it currently right now, so I was interested to hear what he would say about this. Um, so it was, a, it was a helpful conversation to have, and just to hear his outside perspective about the nature of the sacraments in the Salvation Army. So I, I asked him particularly, do you think the Salvation Army should move to reinstitute the traditional Protestant sacraments? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's necessary because, uh, you know, a Salvation Army was originally not a de facto church. It was, it was a spinoff from General... I mean, if you look at the history of General Booth, yeah, it was part of the Methodist larger connection, right? It was a specialized ministry of the larger Methodist connection, and the assumption could be that, that anybody doing that particular kind of ministry, of course, would go back to the Methodist Church and participate in the sacraments. And that would have been John Wesley's assumption as well. But, but de facto, after that, of course, the Salvation Army became their own church and has been for a very, very long period of time, over 100 years. So at this point, uh, you know, you need to obey the command of God to baptize people. And that, that Jesus is pretty clear about that in Matthew 28, and the book of Acts is very clear about that. And, and you also need to practice the Lord's Supper. I mean, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whenever you get together, this should happen. So I'm, I'm all for sacramental renewal in the, in the Salvation Army Church, because, frankly, you really are a church. You're not a, you're not a parachurch organization like World Vision. You are a church. So get on with being a church. Be a full-service, total buffet church, and, and that, will just, that will just help you in the long run be uh, all that you can be.
I couldn't help but add when he said, be all that you can be. I couldn't think of the old uh, commercial, be all that you can be in the army. So I added that. I'm sorry, one of the challenges of this, the way this all happened with my voice not being picked up by the recording is you can't hear it when I laughed at some of his jokes or when I was encouraging some of the things he would say or saying amen or just encouraging him along. Um, but I, I, I added here, as he said that, that one of the reasons that the Salvation Army has moved in this direction from my seat is that we have a, developed a tradition that doesn't use the sacraments. And so then we have traditionalism that has come along with our non-practice of the sacraments. And that has even developed its own theology of non-practice, which sometimes, sometimes can end up seeing itself as superior, like we are not in need of this. And like, I just talked about the the nature of traditionalism and like similar to um, a church seeing this as a deeply spiritual issue if you change choir robes. I was trying to think of it in terms that would be familiar to him. So I just asked him about the, what happens um, when we develop traditions like Salvation Army's non-sacramental position, and he added this. Well, you know, you know what they, you know what they say. The seven last words of the church, written in stone across the doorway entering the church, are, "We have never done it that way before," and that's unfortunate because where is new creation in that? You need to be open to change. And one more thing to say about that: Who doesn't want more of God's grace in your life? The sacraments are means of grace. John Wesley is emphatic about that. I mean, he practiced constant communion. He took communion every single day, okay? Constant communion. Now, I'll, I'll settle for just frequent communion, frequent Lord's Supper, right? But, but it's, it's clear that these things are a means of drawing closer to God, of repenting of your sins, and of receiving blessing and grace from God. Now, can God do it apart from the sacraments? Obviously he can, or there wouldn't be a salvation army, right? Obviously he can. But why would we not be obedient to the heavenly vision of participating in the means of grace that are the sacraments, in addition to various other means of grace? We then had some nice closing words, and in, I enjoyed this hour-long conversation with Dr. Witherington. I encourage you to uh, look up his books. On, I mean, you can find him many places. Um, you have several YouTube videos and presentations he made. If you're interested in finding him, those of you who know me can email me or get in touch with me, and I can put you in touch with him. Um, he'd be a great speaker for Salvation Army events or for any any events with any denomination. I just encourage you to access this person. I mean, he's just a uniquely gifted person in our time. I mean, this is a guy who can talk to you about classic rock all day long. At the same time, you know, he can recite portions of books and scripture almost from a, a photographic sense for minutes at a time. At the same time, I remember taking the Romans class with him. Uh, he turned around to the piano that was there and started playing a Claire de Lune. I mean, this is just a uniquely gifted person and an exceptional writer um, and communicator. So uh, I, I imagine that even in my own preaching, he's one of the most quoted people in my own preaching and has been a, a blessing to me. And I just encourage you to, to look into his work and see if there's a way that um, his ministry through writing and scholarship and preaching 
could benefit you. So thanks for joining us on Captain's Corner. Our thanks to Brendan, and um, who is our, our producer of this program, for helping us get this together. You know, we're, we're still working through these things. And we encourage you to go ahead and, if you can, to subscribe to this podcast or leave us a review on iTunes. Um, those things mean a lot. We've received some encouragement from all over the world, and it's been a blessing to see how people have picked up this podcast from our preaching on Sundays with my wife and myself, and then Captain's Corner as well. So God bless you all. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Captain's Corner. If you'd like to learn more about us, please feel free to check us out at tampasa.org and give us a follow on Twitter at SalArmyTampa. And of course, go ahead and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Thanks so much for joining us. See you next time.